When you think about your favorite video game growing up, you can probably imagine exactly how it sounded and even hum some of the tunes. As it turns out, a lot of the iconic video game scores of the 80s and 90s were created by a group of women, young Japanese composers who were sometimes just out of college. This music has such a strong legacy, but it's almost impossible to find information about the women who wrote it. So for this episode of Get Wired, I talked to Dia Lucina, a writer and video game music expert. Dia recently went on a journey to find out more about this group of composers, who they were and what they worked on, and ultimately how these women shaped the scores we know so well, despite working in a male-dominated gaming industry. And then later on in the show, we'll hear from Emer Noon, a conductor who has brought 8-bit video game music to the symphony. This is Get Wired, and I'm your host, Lauren Good. Dia, thanks so much for joining me today on Get Wired. Thank you so much for having me. This is a treat. So you've been writing about video games now for the past several years, but you've been playing them for a lot longer. Yeah, ever since I can remember, uh, right around the time I was born, the NES came out. And my stepfather was like, Merry Christmas, here's a Nintendo. We had a finished basement in our house. And it was just this big, ugly, wood-paneled room with acoustic tile ceilings and this just colossal wood-encased Sony television um, with these giant loudspeakers that my stepfather had set up as kind of his man cave. And that was where I was allowed to keep the Nintendo. And so I plugged it into that television and I remember being just like inundated with these very simple melodies that are just so invigorating and energetic. Games like Zelda, Mega Man, Strider, and Ninja Gaiden. That was it. That was when, you know, you knew you loved video games. What do you think made the video game music so special to you? This was a medium that was definitely kind of just my own at the time in my family around my friends and things like that. Like it wasn't something that was received from my parents. Um, you know, I love the police. My mom listened to the police constantly. Um, you know, it's like, I grew up watching like Dune and Jaws because my stepfather liked Dune and Jaws. So this was a medium that was, I could be like, no, this is mine. No one else. You can't have this. And it's not coming from you. And so the soundtracks themselves then became a form of music that was kind of wholly my own. And meanwhile, my mom would be just furious at, she's like, just, just turn the sound off, please. I'm begging <laughs> you, give me five minutes where I don't have to listen to this god awful screeching. It's just like metal plates slicing into my brain and body. <laughs> what were some of the soundtracks that stood out to you in those early days of playing games? I mean, one of the earliest ones has to be Castlevania 1's Vampire Killer. You know, when I first got Castlevania, and I think I, I'm pretty sure I rented it from an Errol's video in 1987, and just getting hit with this wall of sound. Next thing you know, it's like you're walking through a graveyard while this is all happening. You know, it almost borrows, and I think it really directly quotes, 
Michael Jackson's Thriller. It has this spooky quality to it that it is both cartoonish and energetic and like just kind of like, yeah, I guess I could see this in a haunted house. And what did you know at the time about who actually composed that? Well, at the time, all I knew is that someone named James Banana composed them. You know, as a kid, you just kind of look at it and you go, okay, James Banana, dude's got a weird name. <laughs> but, you know, the soundtrack kicks ass, so cool. And I didn't know that James Banana was the shared pseudonym of Kinuo Yamashita and Sato Tarashima, um, who were two women who came together to create uh, the soundtrack for Castlevania. <laughs> And if you look in the credits of a lot of those early video games, there's just pseudonym after pseudonym. So who were the people behind these pseudonyms? Well, lots of these early game composers were women creating the foundations of these colossal franchises. And recently I've been digging through the scraps of information I can find about all this music that I loved growing up. And there's just not a lot out there. But one night I was looking through a Capcom wiki when I came across this photograph. It's from 1980 or 1990 something. And it is a photograph of five women and they're seated at a long, low lunch table. It looks like they're in a cafeteria, like a crowded cafe. Yeah, they look like they're in the cafeteria and like it's just blown out and flash in the front. You know, everyone looks kind of tired and we're just hanging out and they kind of look like they're in, you know, a girl punk band or something. <laughs> yeah. But really, it was the sound team for Capcom, you know, one of the biggest game developers. And, you know, I cross-referenced the photo. I put it in Tin Eye and just Googled as much as I could until I knew who each one of them were. And I was just like, oh, my God, that's the woman who made music for Ghosts and Goblins. And she made the music for Strider. And holy crap, she did the soundtrack for Section Z. And she did Mega Man. And so it was just here were all these legends just hanging out together. I just needed to know so much more about this moment, particularly, and just everything else about their work at the time. I really, really wanted to talk to them. And were you able to find them? Well, they're over in Japan and none of them work for Capcom anymore. And it's not like you can just slide into the DMs of the composer for Mega Man. Uh, so I wasn't sure how easy getting these interviews would be. But luckily, I found this music label, Brave Wave. They released new music from like a lot of these iconic video game composers. And they were able to connect us with two of these composers. I was so psyched to be able to talk to Minami Matsumai. She created the original soundtrack for Mega Man. It's hard to get bigger than the Blue Bomber. Mega Man is a video gaming icon. I was also able to talk to Harumi Fujita, which was just so exciting. Who worked for Capcom um, very kind of early um, after moving over from SNK, another uh, studio. And she went on to do a lot of kind of like big deal scores. Um, one of the kind of early games was the Bionic Commando franchise um, that was an arcade game. Bionic Commando, that was the game where the guy had 
the uh, the arm that extended. He has a telescopic arm. Telescopic. Yeah. Arm. I loved that game. Some of these are just seared into my brain. They're like pop songs almost, but just even they're they're reduced pop songs in a way. So were you able to ask them about that photograph that you were digging into? Yeah, actually, uh, I showed it to Harumi Vegeta and she spilled the beans. We should share this. I'm sure it's probably come up before. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this photo is from a company trip that we took. We basically drank that entire night and we were so, so drunk. So we ended up finishing the night by having a meal. <laughs> what did they share with you about the early days of working on that sound team at Capcom? Like, did they feel welcome? Yeah, they said they did. Um, Fujita-san specifically mentioned when she applied to Capcom and was hired, the president of Capcom himself came and hired her. She spoke very fondly of how she was treated and respected. In Japan at the time, women who would join companies were thought of as lacking any knowledge to do any specific kind of work. So I would actually say that Capcom was ahead of the curve. And the president of Capcom at the time recognized people's abilities, regardless of whether they were male or female. And if a female creator was able to produce good work, then that would be recognized. And in fact, Fujita-san told me about these entrance exams and how the year that she came on, the top two scores on that test were from women. First was Junko Tamiya, and second place was Manami Matsumai, and they were the best two performers. And then... The guys who took the examination ended up failing. (laughs) So that's why we ended up with two female composers that year. What were their day-to-day jobs like? Well, it was this super complicated interplay between musical creativity and technical constraint. They were working with this, like, really early technology, like the Nintendo Entertainment System or the Famicom, it's called in Japan, Um, And the cartridges for the Nintendo could only store a few megabits. And the sound chip in the console only had three channels and one channel for just noise. So you couldn't make any type of music you wanted. Um, Matsume-san told me about coding their scores directly into the games uh, one note at a time. It was all dependent on being able to convert the music notes into numbers that the Famicom could read. So it's not like I could use a sound palette I specifically created. It would have to be whatever the Famicom can generate once I've converted all those music notes into the numerical code. But Matsumai-sen said the one thing that made composing within those constraints a little bit easier was having studied Johann Sebastian Bach. I actually was playing the piano ever since I was a kid. And I would play songs by Bach, for example, on the piano. There's a song by Bach called The Well-Tempered Clavier. 
The composition method of box music definitely came in handy in terms of influencing my general approach to music. Because box music has a bass and a melody and a sub-melody, and they all come together in a very specific way. Matsumai-san said that she would take what the game planners told her they needed and come up with the best thing that they could given the hardware they had. I think at the time I was making UN Squadron, Tom Cruise's big movie was out at the time. Top Gun, right? And I remember the planners asking us to make music. You know, that was kind of akin to the vibe of Top Gun. The result is they wanted us to make a soundtrack that was quite refreshing for the time. I love that they were inspired by everything from Bach to Top Gun. I'm still thinking about the pseudonyms, though. Like, I'm wondering why they had to use pseudonyms and effectively weren't given full credit for this incredible artwork. Yeah, Fujita-san told me this was common practice, and it's because video game companies were mostly worried about keeping their employees from getting poached by other developers. Back in the day, headhunting from rival companies was a very big issue to deal with. So the company had asked us to disguise our names in a way where no one would be able to know who did what, which producer did this, or which composer did that. So that's why we ended up using these aliases in the credits. Considering then that their names weren't really out there, right, and they couldn't really be well known, where did they go from there? Well, Harimi Fujita told me that she got pregnant and decided to leave halfway through working on Mega Man 3. And Manami Matsumai said she left Capcom after she got married and had to move to Tokyo. Um, They both started composing uh, freelance for games. Uh, Fujita-san started doing live theater and Matsumai-san released a solo album. And recently, they've been working on soundtracks for new games that are throwbacks to the kind of games that they originally scored, like Shovel Knight, Streets of Rage 4. So they've had pretty lasting careers. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, And their influence really extends beyond the games they scored and continue to score. It's all around us. Chiptune music, which is a style or genre of electronic music made using the uh, programmable sound chips from synthesizers in arcade machines, old computers, and video game consoles. Which, aside from video games, just outside of the soundtracks itself, um, is a huge genre of music um, that lots of people are working in, and they're drawing inspiration, you know, from these these women. You know, um, there are composers in like you know. hip-hop that are producers that are sampling the Castlevania themes and remixing them. And then you have a whole new surgence of composers that are all building off of the cultural legacy that these women have created. 
you know, these might not be household names. Manami Matsumai, Harumi Fujita, Kinuo Yamashita, Satoe Tarashima. But the music they made is ingrained in our culture. And now video game music has become this whole different beast. You know, the media moved past those 8-bit cartridges a long, long time ago. And now games are going for these big, sweeping, cinematic orchestral soundtracks. But people really cherish these old-school compositions. Now they get performed by entire orchestras around the world. The next person I wanted to talk to is a woman who's standing up at the podium conducting so many of these game music orchestras, Emer Noon. I would love nothing more than to go to a video game orchestra right now. This sounds so cool. Who is Emer Noon? Tell me about her. So Emer's kind of a contemporary video game music legend. You know, she's composed and conducted music for Diablo, StarCraft, World of Warcraft. She's conducted the Video Games Live tour. Um, and when Nintendo wanted to do this big Legend of Zelda 25th anniversary concert tour, she was the conductor they had at the podium. I wanted to talk to her about what the world of video game music is like for women now and to get a sense of how these things evolved from those early days. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to hear Dia's interview with Emer Noon and hear how an ancient Hebrew battle set the tone for one of her most memorable compositions from World of Warcraft. So stick around. Hey, friends. I'm Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. I'm the host of the new podcast, Commotion. If you don't know about us yet, well, we are your daily deep dive into the biggest stories coming out of the world of pop culture, art, and entertainment. And luckily, I'm not going to be doing it alone, okay? I'll be joined by some brilliant culture writers and thoughtful superfans. We're going to have hilarious hot takes. We're going to have vibrant debates. Consider this your invitation to join the group chat. Get in here and join us. Commotion, available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm journalist Sam Sanders. I'm poet Saeed Jones. And I'm producer Zach Stafford. And we are the hosts of a podcast called Vibe Check. On Vibe Check, we talk about everything. News, culture, and entertainment, and how it all feels. That's right. We talk about any and everything on our show, from real-life issues like grief to music and movie critiques. And that barely scratches the surface. Yes, indeed. And it doesn't stop there. We have got a lot to say. So join our group chat, Come to Life. Follow and listen to Vibe Check wherever you get your podcasts. Emer, hello. Hi, guys. <laughs> Hi, Emer. Thank you for talking to me and joining us today. Um, I really appreciate it. This is such uh, a treasure. Mommy. Uh, hold on one second, dear. Close the door. We're recording. Thank you, love. Thank you. I have a seven-year-old. Yeah. And he is gamer-tastic. It's just like, I was pregnant with him when I was doing the, the Zelda 25th anniversary tour. <laughs> I, just, I, I think some Nintendo just seeped in there. You know, that actually is, a, it's funny because I am, I think the first piece of game music that I can remember that I really fell in love with and is just incorporated into my DNA at this point is the 
Zelda main theme. Put the gold cartridge in my little ugly gray box and was just blown away. Oh, um, go straight to your bloodstream, that one, doesn't it? That theme was so simple and composed for these ancient sound chips with just a few channels. And 25 years later, Emer, you take that simple theme and have just turned it into this huge, sweeping, orchestral experience from those three little sound channels. How do you do that? I have a theory about this one. Koji Kondo had to program his themes in note by note. There were no random notes. There were no passing tones that didn't mean anything. Every single note had to mean something. And I feel like because Kondo-san had so little to work with, in a way, he used those limitations to create these themes that were completely limitless in what we could do with them later on in terms of orchestration. I mean, I mean, it's such a trumpet line. So when we did the Zelda fantasy, I imagined the characters walking through the city with high walls, with all of those trumpet players, you know, the ones that have the little piece of tapestry hanging from the instrument. So I had nine trumpet parts all over the place answering each other like these echoes. So I imagined this parade in through this this imaginary city with all the trumpet players on the walls. And it, it's, I guess that had been in my imagination for quite some time. Oh my God, Zelda fans. Oh my God, the sweetest, sweetest. There was one family in the U.S., uh, a mom and three daughters and the three daughters would show up in cosplay every time and they would follow us around the country and you know you'd be in Houston with the Houston Symphony one night and then you know somewhere like you could be in New York or you could be and this family I don't know how many concerts they came to but I remember the girls all played in high school band I think but their mom said she really wanted them to experience a woman on the podium so that they knew they could do anything. That's really special. So you've also worked on original game scores. I know I've been listening to your conducting for nearly two decades, right? You've been conducting for World of Warcraft since 2004, at the the very beginning. I worked on the very first one as an orchestrator. We recorded it in a college. Nobody realized how big a deal World of Warcraft was going to become. I think that the 10-year anniversary a few years ago, they had something like 100 million individual players at that point. Mad. I think a lot about your compositions on the soundtrack for the World of Warcraft expansion, Warlords of Draenor. Uh, Particularly, there is one piece that you composed, Malak, and it's just so beautiful and emotional and primal. Could you tell me about composing that piece? 
that's actually an example of one that has a narrative. I was reading a book called The Dove Keepers, and it's the story of Masada, which is this incredible battle that happened between the ancient Hebraic peoples and the Romans. And the Romans actually built this massive ramp to attack the people. And the Hebraic people, the Jewish people, knew that they couldn't escape. They knew what the Romans would do to their people. So they they ended up taking their own lives so that when the centurions finally got to the top of the mountain, they found this terrible quiet, this terrible, eerie quiet, um, and not a soul However, the story was that five women escaped from Masada. And I imagined one of those women singing a lullaby to her child that was the story of a great quest. And I didn't realize until I had written it that it was for our son, Aaron, who who we lost. He was our firstborn. I felt I could never take him anywhere, only in my imagination and in the music. So I designed this as a quest that I could take him on. It goes through certain regions. It begins the lullaby, the mother singing to her child. Then it goes from there into the great Exodus theme, which is Aaron's theme. I just wanted it to sound huge and like we were going on this incredible journey across huge, expansive landscapes. We go from there into the shamanesque high priestess. And when I was writing it, I had a singer record it and I realized her voice was too nice. So I ended up recording it myself. It needed to be nasty and primal. Sort of semi-Baroque counterpoint in there as well that was broken. It wasn't perfect counterpoint to show the emergence of formality out of this hedonistic sort of religion. You go from there into the battle and the battle gets more and more intense and more and more intense and so much so I I have the choir pretty much screaming. And then of course I brought in a shofar player to play the ancient Hebraic battle cries. When they say, blow that ram's horn Joshua cried at the battle of Jericho, that's what they're talking about. Can you imagine that being played at Masada, at the top of the mountain, calling the soldiers to battle? You know, my God. For the strings in particular, the violins, I have these bowings so that they can't but help but go, I wanted the hair coming off the bows. I wanted their heart rates pumping because their arms are going back and forth like this and it builds and it builds and it builds. Then at the very end, we have this stillness. It's the day after the battle and it's a very heavy stillness. 
It's a horrible stillness. It's incredibly poignant and full of horror because of what has come to pass. I have gotten to perform that piece live so many times since and it means an awful lot to me when I hear a choir in Taipei or I hear a choir in Poland, you know, all these different countries singing this piece and instinctively understanding what the music means without me having to tell them. And one of the things that means a lot to me about World of Warcraft is this idea we're talking about Azeroth. That's a world, but it's a world in which all of the players come from totally every culture, every background, you know, almost every country on our planet. And they have no barriers between them. We see all this divisive politics and weird stuff right now. And I love the idea of people being together inside the game and going on quests together and going, not having any rubbish or baggage between them and one of the things about music is that you can get into a person's imagination without words there are certain harmonic shifts that bring about a certain emotion of course they're not the same in every human being but they're similar and we still can't explain that one of the things i'm looking at now is how places like Capcom and Konami and these other large Japanese game companies that early on hired what seemed to be a lot of women composers, like Kenyo Yamashita and Satoe Terashima, who composed the Castlevania score. And then I look at, you know, statistics now. Um, I saw a survey that was maybe 12.4% of women in all of audio in video games. The 12% that you just quoted, I'd say for composers, if we were to just talk about composers, it's an awful lot smaller than that. Right. Uh, And I I was thinking about this today, about those brilliant, I mean, Castlevania. And when you talk about classics, that's one of my favorites. Talking about Japanese women composers, and I was thinking that was much more in the early days. I don't see as many today. And I wondered, was it more because it was a newer pop art form that we could kind of sneak in under the radar a little bit? But, you know, that there were so many from Japan in the earlier days. And I don't see that having had a progression where then after that there was more and there was more and there was more because I program concerts all the time. And to be honest, I I know most of the women composers that are out there and there's just some outstanding, stunning talent. But I have a hard time programming a concert if I'm to program a concert for video game music of just women composers. I'm going to have a hard time balancing a whole concert. And that bothers me endlessly. There are so many women doing great work and there's so much talent. You know, recently a, a dear friend of mine, her name is Pinar Toprak, did some of the music for Fortnite and then did Captain Marvel. Yeah. It was the highest budget film ever scored by uh, a female composer. 
And Captain Marvel came out just March of last year. My God. I mean, I might have scored it myself. I was that proud. You know, I went to see it with her when it came out and I just, I know her journey. And, you know, it was a big deal that at the time that, oh my gosh, what, women can write action music? What? But surely we need masculine music. I heard a conductor, I was on a a panel recently about the career of conductor, and he said, well, music is either masculine or feminine. I was like, no, it isn't. It doesn't have a gender. It's music. What are you talking about? And this is a kind of dangerous type of um, opinion where people say, you know, oh, this, we need masculine music. We can't have her score a battle scene or we can't have her conduct the war requiem. What a load of rubbish. We are rounded people. You know, I'm, I'm all about bring on the big drums and the big brass. You know, that's where my heart is when it needs to be. Um, but if I need to write something that's delicate, I can do that. Sure. I, you know, I'm professional. But the idea that music has gender is absolute, total and utter tosh. And it's something that's been used as an excuse not to choose a woman for the job, either conducting or composing. You know, what? You can't write action music? Like, what? I can't write stuff that has, you know, an ostinato in the string part, um, ripping (laughs) horns and lots of taiko drums. What? (laughs) Didn't I just do that? (laughs) Do you want me to sing one for you? (laughs) Okay, done. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Well, Emer... This has been such a wonderful delight. Um, Thank you so much. Well, thank you for making it so much fun. That's it for this episode of Get Wired. Get Wired is hosted by me, Lauren Good. You can follow me on Twitter, at Lauren Good. This episode was reported by Dia Lucina. Thanks again, Dia, for joining us. You can find her on Twitter, at Dia Lucina. This story is part of a new initiative we're doing here at Wired, looking closely at how video games are shaping our culture and society at large. We'll have stories on Wired.com slash games about the military trying to recruit gamers over Twitch, how one woman turned to mobile games to help cope with a difficult hospital visit, and a lot more, including Dia's companion piece to this podcast. So just go to our website, Wired.com. Thanks to Emer Noon, Manami Matsume, and Harumi Fajita for coming on the show today. Thanks to Mohammed Tahir and Alexander Anil from the Brave Wave Music Label, which is an independent label that releases new music from these composers. They helped connect us to Matsumai-san and Fujita-san and helped us translate the interview. Special thanks to Craig Garfinkel and Alkisti Mikro-Georgiou. This episode was produced by Mickey Kapper with additional production help from Anna Stitt and Alex Jerome. Mixing and scoring was done by Hannah Brown, and our theme music is by Allison Leighton Brown. Our voice actor was Irene Yenko. Nina Gensler-Debs and Sarah Fallon edited this episode. Wired editor Alan Henry provided additional guidance. Our executive producer is Alex Kappelman. Scott Rosenfield is Wired's site director, and our editor-in-chief is Nick Thompson. You can find out more about the Get Wired podcast at wired.com forward slash subscribe forward slash get wired. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week.
Hey friends, I'm Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. I'm the host of the new podcast, Commotion. If you don't know about us yet, well, we are your daily deep dive into the biggest stories coming out of the world of pop culture, art, and entertainment. And luckily, I'm not going to be doing it alone, okay? I'll be joined by some brilliant culture writers and thoughtful super fans. We're going to have hilarious hot takes. We're going to have vibrant debates. Consider this your invitation to join the group chat. Get in here and join us. Commotion, available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts.